This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Revolution. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Mike Osborne. Right now, I am at the top of a mountain. I'm towering over this emerald lake. I can see all these lush green meadows and a 360 view. I think that there's going to be a storm. The clouds right above me are a little gray, but then blue sky is peeking out in between. And in the distance, I can see forests of aspen and doug fir and ponderosa on the hike up here i smelled a bunch of ponderosas they always smell like either vanilla or butterscotch to me i woke up this morning at 4 a.m in santa fe new mexico and i decided i wanted to climb east pecos baldy in the pecos wilderness in the santa fe national forest i haven't seen a soul all day and i gotta tell you man it's one of those days where I'm at the top of a mountain and it's like, planet Earth is incredible. I need to be reminded of that regularly. It fills my soul, you know. It's stunning up here. And I'm really lucky. I've had it all to myself today. Mocha, do you want to say hello? Good girl. Good girl. Yeah, I'm not totally alone. I got my dog with me. Yeah. The reason I'm up here, I'll get to in just a half a second. But first, I want to kind of have a programming note about what's going on with Generation Anthropocene. I brought the show back last April, April 2020, and I've had a lot of fun doing some of the interviews I've been doing. But to me, the show has really been missing something critical, and that is student voices, younger voices. I mean, I care about the Anthropocene, humans as a geologic force and all that, but more than the Anthropocene part of this show, I care about the generation part. I'm a dad now. I've been doing this show for about 10 years, and I get a lot out of working with younger people and hearing about their curiosity, their questions, and I want to help them tell stories on this show. So what I decided to do is I reached out to a professor friend of mine, and I said, hey, maybe you have some interns who I could work with this summer, in summer 2021. And he had a handful of students who were really interested. So 
that's what we've been doing the last several months. And I got to admit, working with students again is rejuvenating because, I don't know, this show is to me at its best when it's about the next generation. So I asked each of my interns to come up with a question, something that their grandmother might ask them about climate change. And then I said, I'll find somebody we can interview and we'll do a kind of explainer episode series. And the way this is working is that my students are asking the question at the top and then there might be a little back and forth where I follow up a little bit. And then at the end, we circle back to the student. So that's like the structure of this episode. And that's the structure of a handful of episodes to come. The first one we're going to do comes from my intern, Brandon Burke. And his question has to do with this number, two degrees Celsius. And that actually brings me back to why I'm at the top of this mountain. I climbed something like 3,800 feet from the trailhead to get to this summit. And I looked this up. The temperature difference around 3,800 feet is roughly two degrees Celsius, which is four something Fahrenheit. So I climbed two degrees Celsius today. My math may be off. So at the end of this episode, I'll check my math and see exactly what the elevation temperature relationship is on average on planet Earth. All right, let's get to it. So here's Brandon Burke asking his question to my friend at Hamilton College, Aaron Strong. So Aaron, you hear the number two degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit a lot in relation to climate change. Why is this number important and where did it come from? Sure. Well, it's important because right now it's the globally agreed upon target that we want to hold warming to. And I think the story we want to tell is how did we get there? How did we establish a target for all of humanity to try to hold global warming to this limit? And again, it's two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial conditions, basically what it was like in the 19th century. So where did two degrees come from? Well, its origin is kind of a funny one. It was basically a guess, you know, an off-the-cuff, back-of-the-envelope, jot it down, throw it out there, have to pick a number, let's go with two degrees. And that came in the mid-1970s. So this is an interesting time. Mid-1970s, not a lot of people were writing about global warming. Most people were focused on, well, maybe we're going to head into a new ice age. And that's not because the science of global warming wasn't clear. We've known since the 19th century that increasing carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere could warm the planet. But it hadn't really emerged into the scientific consciousness that it was actually happening. And the signals that we had already put enough CO2 in the atmosphere that the planet was warming, those hadn't really arisen yet. So it's a time when only a handful of scientists are really paying attention to it. And you, and you know who came up with the two degree number? It's from a guy named Bill Nordhaus, who is an economist at Yale. I want to pause for a second and say that he's one of the first economists to look at, should we act on climate change? Is it worth it economically to stand in the way? And so in order to figure out the answer of that question, right, he had to learn a lot about what the future impacts of climate change were likely to be. I just want to hop in for a sec real quick and ask, okay, so 1975, the science of climate change is beginning to come about, but it's still pretty early days. That seems kind of crazy that an economist in 1975 is already taking an interest in this subject. 
Yeah, and it's funny to focus on Nordhaus because over time he sort of became famous for not being as an aggressive uh, a hawk on the need for climate action as some other economists. But what he's reading, the climate science that he's reading, isn't all projections of the future. He's going on what available data we have, and those data are about the past, right? So he's saying, let's look at all of humanity and even a little bit before humanity arose. How warm was it? How cold was it? How much did temperatures go up and down in these natural fluctuations? He fully knew that adding CO2 to the atmosphere could push us higher. But if you look in the past, probably we should stay within a limit that people have potentially experienced. You know, temperatures do go up and down from natural causes, nowhere near as much as or as rapidly as we've seen with contemporary human-caused climate change. And that's kind of where the two-degree number comes from. You know, mostly we've kind of stayed within this limit. So in the future, if we don't want everything to go haywire and be totally unprecedented, maybe we should kind of stay within that limit. So he's reading this literature from paleoclimatologists, people who study the past, and saying, well, this seems like roughly a safe operating space, right? Let's, let's stick within two degrees. And he throws it at the end of an economics paper that's starting to speculate about whether it makes sense to put the brakes on CO2. Got it. So not a lot happens when you publish papers in the 1970s, but you flash forward to the late 1980s and we start to get some urgency around climate change. Part of that is because the actual signal of human-caused warming emerges from the noise. In other words, for the first time, scientists are able to say, look, the planet is getting warmer and it is because of, of CO2. And so in 1990, we get the first ever intergovernmental panel on climate change. And this was formed by the World Meteorological Organization to say, hey, we got to gather all the science on what's going on out here. And that's really what kicks off the next two decades of global climate policy. So there's this gap of 15 years or so from when Nordhaus is publishing this kind of two-degree number and a kind of throwaway at the end of a, a journal article. Then it gets picked up again. It gets picked up by a group of researchers at the Stockholm Environment Institute, SEI, and they say, well, you know, now that we're starting to get more serious about climate change, we have this big intergovernmental panel that's reviewing the science. You know, what is the danger of climate change? And they also kind of come to this two degree number. They look back and they say, you know, that's not really a scientific question. But looking at all the available data, we can kind of say two degrees seems like a good idea. So they repeat the two degree number again in 1990 in this report. And that's happening right at the start of the launch of the international effort to do something about it. Pay attention to it, if nothing else, and like get better science around it and maybe even be thinking about a policy solution. Yeah. And that's what we get in 1992. So leading out of this first ever IPCC report at the Earth Summit in, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil in 1992, this is a, a big and important meeting. It's actually more than just climate change on the docket. It's the destruction of the rainforest, global fisheries, biodiversity, all these other things that come up. The idea was, look, there wasn't a Cold War anymore. So let's start tackling the big problems that are threatening sustainable development. And one of those was potentially climate change. And so you get the negotiation of this treaty called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. In 1992, every country in the world, including the United States, signs on to this new treaty. And that's really what launches the effort to start doing something about the problem of climate change. Is this where the term dangerous anthropogenic interference comes from? Yeah, it's, it's funny. You know, you get these turns of phrase that become central to the story. And you're totally right. Dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. That language comes from Article 2 of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, adopted in 1992. 
And Article 2 is the goals, the objectives of the treaty, where it just lays out, here's the point of what we're doing here. And all it says is we're trying to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. All the countries of the world agree, let's avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. But it doesn't say what dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system is, how to measure it, or even how we should start to go about doing something about it, even if we don't know what dangerous anthropogenic interference is. That's kind of hilarious. Like, hey, there's danger, but nobody's really... Like, can you elaborate on that danger? I mean, I'm sure they elaborate on some of the consequences, but can you be more specific about what that means? Nobody thought to to do that? Well, here's here's the, in defense of the UN system and their vagueness, here's why. In the 1980s, there was another big problem, and that was the ozone hole was opening. Yeah. But it had largely by then, even by 1992, the solution was already in place. And it came from two global treaties that took place in the 1980s. And the first one said, the ozone hole's a problem, let's do something about it. And then two years later, they said, and here's what we're going to do. The rich countries are going to stop putting chlorofluorocarbons in their hairspray and their refrigerants, and they're going to switch them out. And they're going to go first, and then the poor countries are going to go second after that. And so everyone in 1992 said, aha, it worked for the ozone hole, let's do the same thing. Okay, so just to make sure the ozone hole is relevant here, once upon a time, probably wasn't exactly these words, but there was something about dangerous anthropogenic interference with the ozone hole, and that was sufficient for getting the Montreal Protocol into place and closing the ozone hole and getting rid of CFCs. So why not use similar language, dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system, to deal with this global warming problem, which leads to Kyoto? Right. And it leads to Kyoto. But in Kyoto, we still don't know what dangerous anthropogenic interference is. All we know is that the rich countries are going to go first. And we know that they're going to start trying to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So instead of saying, here's what danger is, and here's the science that says we need to reduce our emissions by this much to avoid it, they simply say, danger could be out there. Let's start chipping away at the problem. But Changing the chemicals in your hairspray is a little bit easier than changing the fundamental basis of the entire energy system on the planet. And so Kyoto fails pretty miserably. The U.S. withdraws in 2001. And so we don't get a lot of climate action taking place in the early 2000s. It's sort of this big period of inaction. And a lot of that is just cold feet, people worrying that it's going to stifle development, some people questioning whether it's really a problem. And I think what finally catalyzes action is a couple things. Climate change is real and it's happening and people are starting to see the effects. We have massive heat waves in Europe killing tens of thousands of people in 2003. We have Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which is kind of the wake up moment in the United States for wow, we can really suffer the effects of what's going to happen more and more with climate change. And so after those set of 10 years or so, we get to, to 2007, another big IPCC report comes out and says, look, humans are doing this. This problem's not going away. And whatever you tried to say you were going to do back in 1997 in the Kyoto Protocol doesn't look like it's going to cut it. It's kind of weak sauce. I mean, they, you look at the Kyoto Protocol, it's like we will hold our emissions steady at 1990 levels. And the scientists are now saying 10 years later, those commitments are not going to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. And if you're paying attention, you might think, how do we know what dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate <laughs> system is? 
I did have that question. Yeah. And, and that's where we dust off this two degree number. And so the global community comes together and says, look, we need to replace the Kyoto Protocol with something new. We're going to try to do it by 2009 in this meeting in Copenhagen that's coming up. And in the lead up to that, the European Union is really pushing and saying, look, you know, we need to put a number on this. We need to say, here's our goal. And the small island states kind of emerge as this big sort of set of leaders pushing for more action because they start saying, all the science says that our islands are going underwater from sea level rise with those kind of emissions reductions. So we need more and we need to set a target that says this is what's safe because it's coming and it's affecting us right now. So they become this real sort of moral argument for more aggressive emissions reduction commitments but also for setting an actual target or a goal, putting a number on the phrase dangerous anthropogenic interference. Because they're about to be wiped off the face of the map, literally. Like those, those nations are going away because they're going to get buried by sea level rise. Yeah. I mean, if your country is mostly less than six feet above sea level rise and the model projections from the 2007 IPCC report say if things keep going business as usual, you guys are drowned. And then you're actually seeing the effects, right? Salt water's coming in and destroying your crops. Beaches are eroding really rapidly. So it becomes real. And that's what happens kind of between 2005 and 2010. Climate change really hits and starts to be real for a whole lot of people around the planet. So at what point does two degrees finally get cemented as the number to shoot for? And is it the right number for that matter? So it gets officially lodged as the target in 2010 not in 2009 in Copenhagen, and immediately is seen as not really the right number. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And so here's what happens. You have a meeting in cold December in Copenhagen when it's dark for most of the day with a whole bunch of world leaders trying to negotiate a solution in two days at the end of a meeting in a venue that can't even hold all the people that it's supposed to hold. It turns out world leaders are really bad at diplomacy and the Copenhagen (laughs) meeting falls apart. Isn't that their job? I was there. You know, I remember the debrief with the U.S. State Department right after everything fell apart. And it was just an SHIT show, right? Like complete failure. There were big signs that said Hopenhagen of all these activists. And as I was taking the train back to the airport, someone had crossed out the H and put an N and it said Nopenhagen. (laughs) So Nopenhagen is because the effort to replace the Kyoto Protocol failed. But there was a nice little turn of phrase in this note. So they produced this short note called the Copenhagen Accord. And it says, well, we should set a target of well below two degrees Celsius. Well below two degrees Celsius. Right. So what happens in Copenhagen or Nopenhagen is you do actually get some language about a long-term goal or target. And it's to limit the overall global warming to no more than two degrees Celsius uh, above pre-industrial levels. So, hey, we got a number. The EU had been talking about it. Some of the small island states had been saying we need a number. And we finally have a definition for dangerous anthropogenic interference, except it's not official because it wasn't actually a treaty because Copenhagen fell apart. And so the next year in Cancun, turns out at the Moon Palace on the beaches of Cancun, you can do a better job of diplomacy in December than (laughs) in downtown Copenhagen. Margaritas, mariachis, people are partying. Right. And that's where we lodge the official text of no more than two degrees Celsius as the target in an agreement from the UN system. 
And so we finally have a number. And I just want to emphasize one of the important parts of this number before we get to how it's woefully inadequate. And that's this. The number means you can do more science. So everyone thinks this is a scientifically generated target, right? That's not true. It came out of a sort of offhand remark as roughly what it should be. Some, you know, NGOs pick it up, some politicians pick it up. It's a politically determined target. Two degrees, sounds good. But once all the countries of the world agree to two degrees as the upper limit for warming, then you have a measuring stick. Then you can say whether plans are adequate or not. And the scientists can start saying, well, in order to hold warming to two degrees, here's what has to happen to our energy system. Here's what has to happen to our emissions profile, right? So with this political target that's finally locked in in 2010, then we can start doing a bunch of science to evaluate different plans for climate action. That is so powerful. So I want to hop in on one thing, because I do remember, you know, I was in grad school around this time, and Aaron, as when we were both in grad school, I remember hearing this is a political target. It's not a scientific target. It's a political target, right? That's what people were saying. It's not way off. I mean, it's not eight degrees and it's not 0.01 degrees, right? It, it's in the ballpark of something that looks like dangerous. Of course, that's going to exist along a spectrum of what dangerous actually means. So I don't know. As much as it was a political target, it also wasn't a totally non-scientific target either. You know what I mean? My answer to that is answering the question of what is dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system is a political question, right? It's about our values. It's about who's danger and what level of danger. And this actually becomes super important. As soon as we get this target, then the scientists can start saying, well, it kind of looks like with two degrees warming, some of these small island states are actually still going to be underwater from sea level rise. And that if we set this as the safe limit, there's a whole lot of people who are very unsafe. And all of a sudden, immediately what you get is huge pressure to push the target down to 1.5 degrees C. And that happens in the early 2010s? That happens in the early 2010s, primarily led from the small island states that say, look, two degrees, great, but not good enough for us. If this is actually about what's dangerous, we want 1.5 degrees. And so they go into the Paris Agreement, which is in 2015. This is when we actually get a replacement for the Kyoto Protocol, 18 years after the Kyoto Protocol was first agreed. And we actually get all the countries of the world coming with their own individual pledges of what they're going to do for emissions reductions. And it was smart. It was well set up. All the countries had made their pledges before the meeting in Paris in 2015. And the small island states were still saying, look, we're not going to sign on to this unless we get 1.5 degrees as a target because this is not safe for us. And the big rich countries were saying, we're not even sure if we can even hold warming to 1.5 degrees. You know, newsflash, it's already warmed one degree at the time. It was just under one degree Celsius. Now it's about 1.1. Today in 21, it's 1.1. Yeah, so, so 2021, we've had 1.1 degrees warming, right? So they're saying, well, we don't even know if, if it's even physically possible to do this. And we're going to have to change a lot of things to do this. So let's stick to two degrees. They go back and forth, back and forth. They have two weeks to debate this. And this is one of the central points of debate in Paris. Everyone had already made their emissions reduction pledges, their commitments and all of that. This is the real push-pull. And they come up with wonderful compromise language that the goal should be to hold warming to well below two degrees Celsius, and to pursue efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. 
Now, that might not strike you as a compromise that's going to save the Maldives, but everyone in the small island states was very enthusiastic to have a reference to 1.5 degrees as a target, even if it was just to pursue efforts. And what matters even more is, again, once you readjust a target and actually put some numbers on the table, you can do more science. So the other thing that came out of the Paris Agreement is a big new study by all the scientists in the world published in 2018. And what it did was say, can we still hold warming to 1.5 degrees? What would it take to do that? And what would the impacts of 1.5 degrees be? Would they really be safer than two degrees? These were all the questions that people were arguing about politically in 2015 in Paris. And the scientific answer is, we got to cut emissions in half by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050. Yes, we can still have a shot to avoid 1.5 degrees, but only if by 2030 we're cutting emissions in half and only if by 2050 we're getting to net zero. And all of a sudden you get 60 countries around the world this last year making pledges to go to net zero. You have New York, you have California, you have Unilever and PepsiCo. Heck, you even have fossil fuel companies saying they're going to get to net zero. Why? Well, everyone is being driven now by this latest set of what is it going to take to get to our target And in the last three years, this big proliferation of climate pledges has really come on the tails of this IPCC report in 2018, which is a product of taking a look at what it would take to get to the 1.5 degree target, which was only established as a political response to the two degree target. Brandon, do you feel like you got an answer to your question here? Yeah. So I guess to wrap this story up, where does it sit today? It sounds like a lot of countries and companies have made pledges based on 1.5. So is that settled now? Is is two degrees buried at this point? Yeah. Are we going to be hearing more about two degrees? <laughs> I think right now, if you stand up and say, rah, rah, two degrees is our target, people will shoot you down and say, no, we got to hold it to less than that or not see it as adequate. But I don't think we're going to get any new language on new targets. I think right now we have hold warming to well below two degrees, pursue efforts to get to 1.5. And part of that acknowledges that even with all those pledges, the odds of actually holding warming to 1.5 degrees are pretty slim. It's a massive change in our global system. But the good news is that even if we miss the target, as long as we don't miss it by that much, we're still preventing a whole lot of harm and suffering right? Because danger is not a line. It's not a bright line in the sand of, yes, this is dangerous. No, this is not. Every extra 0.1 degree of warming, every extra bit of CO2 causes more harm to real people. Maybe we can hold it in that safe operating space for humanity. Is it safe for every person? No. But maybe if you take the long view of paleo history that Bill Nordhaus started with way back in 1975, Maybe we can still hold, hold it together well enough to be within that safe operating space, even if we end up at two degrees, two and a half degrees. It's still not a fireball planet that's just runaway climate change. One last thing, Aaron. So when we hear people sort of say, you know, the next nine years, you know, eight, nine years, this is our moment to do it. You referenced, you know, bending the curve by 2030 and getting to net zero by 2050, that's what they're talking about. It's this discussion that makes the next several years so urgent for finally taking action on this. That's exactly right. The urgency of climate action, this idea that we have a decade left to do something about the problem, 
that comes directly from the analysis that says, what is it going to take to try to hold warming to 1.5 degrees? Perfect. Aaron, this was awesome, man. Thank you so much again for making the time for it. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. All right. So when I got back from my hike, I looked it up and Samsonite, I was way off. So according to the National Weather Service, overall on planet Earth, for every 1,000 feet in elevation change, you drop in temperature somewhere between 3.3 and 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on humidity, how wet the air is. That translates to about 1.8 to 3 degrees Celsius. Now, I went up 3,800 feet, so I checked my math a few times. That means I should have changed in temperature in Celsius somewhere between five and a half and 11 and a half degrees Celsius. In other words, I blew right past two degrees Celsius. Let's hope that we as a species don't do the same thing. Anyway, thank you again to Aaron Strong for taking the time for this conversation. Thanks also to Brandon Burke. I'm Mike Osborne. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time.